Brethren, I invite you to turn in your copy of the Scriptures to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Very familiar passage to most of us, not all of us. Paul's letter to the Corinthians, the first letter, chapter 13. Hear once again the very Word of God. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It is not puffed up. Does not behave rudely. Does not seek its own. Is not provoked and thinks no evil. Does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Bears all things. Believes all things. Hopes all things. Endures all things. Love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. And now abide faith, hope, and love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we are reminded by this passage of the profound nature of your Son, Jesus Christ, who lovingly set aside His glory in your presence and became a man that He might endure death for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That love is described in this chapter. And Father, we are known because you first loved us, the Scriptures teach us. And we give thanks for that. And we pray, Father, as we consider what it means to become image bearers of Christ, we pray that we would consider passages such as these, where you acted on our behalf before we were even created, to bring salvation to men before the foundations of the world, that we might sing your praises, that we might glorify you in your creation, And that we might be in your presence eternally by the work and the grace of Jesus Christ our Lord. And we give thanks for these things, Father. Bless us now as we again consider your word. Mold and make our minds conform to the image of your Son. That truly we might be proclaimers and and heralds of that good news to the world. We ask this in his name and for his sake. Amen. Well, brethren, last week I began a series of sermons that focuses our attention on the Christian being conformed to the image of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. We also considered that 
man, whether a Christian or non-believer, begins with a basic presupposition of the existence of the God of the Bible. And we saw this in Romans chapter 1. The Christian embraces the biblical description of God, which then colors his entire world. The non-believer rejects the biblical God as he is revealed there in Scripture and opts for some other philosophical construct in which he lives out his or her life. And these are what we call worldviews, one being Christian, the other being pagan. In short, we all begin at the same point, but our perspective of embracing the God of the Bible or rejecting Him is the foundation of our worldview. From one's foundation, every, everyone perceives, everyone thinks, everyone makes decisions. All things are colored by one's worldview, or as the Germans call it, the Weltanschauung. I learned that term in college. It stuck with me. When a man embraces the God of the Bible or suppresses that truth in unrighteousness, that choice will send that man on a trajectory that is consistent with, with his worldview. The embracing of God as he is revealed in the Scriptures or the rejecting of God as he is revealed in the Scriptures will send a man on a trajectory which if he is consistent, will take him in very different directions. But both men share a worldview that starts with the God of the Scriptures. Now, each of you has a worldview, and I'm going to try to explain what that means a little bit. It's kind of a, it's not a hard concept to grasp, but the breadth of it's hard to, to get your arms around. The mere fact that you're sitting in a worship service says something about your worldview. Every act that you do, every decision that you make, comes from your worldview. The very fact that you're here today speaks about your worldview. Now, <coughs> that doesn't mean everyone that's here embraces the God of the Bible in the same way. There are those here today that embrace the God of the Bible and His Son as their Lord and consequently have come here today to honor the triune God with praise, homage, adoration, and thanksgiving. There may be others here that have not bowed their knees to the triune God but are well on their way to doing so because they've tasted of the good gifts of God and they want more. And God is drawing them to Himself. We call that the effectual call in theological terms. Still others may be visitors who are questioning, questioning the viability of their own worldview and are, are wondering what else may be out there to consider and that for some reason is drawn them here. In all, one's worldview motivates us to do things, whether it is to worship the triune God in holiness as humble servants, or to seek that knowledge because our worldview is outside of the Christian worldview but is with problems and one is seeking answers. Now I have likened our embracing or rejecting the God of the Bible to a, uh, a foundation and foundations had beginnings. Uh, if we think about a building with a foundation, we've got some substantial structures here, the one that we're in and the one next to us. 
They have foundations and cornerstones are laid first. And so it's more probably more accurate to likening our first presupposition as the cornerstone of a building's foundation. And then other stones are laid with that foundation. And those stones are laid in perspective of the cornerstone. When a builder constructs a building, he must lay the cornerstone first, from which all the other parts of the building are erected. Even the remainder of the foundation is oriented to the cornerstone. One cannot construct a sound structure without properly orienting the remaining foundation to the cornerstone. Now, I had the privilege uh, last evening of being at uh, the Museum Center in Cincinnati. And it's a substantial structure. It's the old Union Terminal. And it has a cornerstone, I believe the date on it's 1931. And it's very prominent when you walk up to the front door, it's to the right-hand side of the building. But that stone was laid first, and that edifice was oriented to that one stone. Presuppositionalism's like that. God, the God of the Bible, is the cornerstone. Even the scriptures tell us that Jesus is the cornerstone, and he being part of the triune Godhead, uh, in equality with the rest of the, the Godhead, he is the evidence of God's goodness to man, his love for us, his creativity, all the things that are wrapped up in the person and work of Christ is the cornerstone of our faith. When a builder constructs that building, he must lay that cornerstone. And everything is oriented to it. In the case of the construction of one's worldview around the chief cornerstone, one has to orient all foundational thoughts to that one cornerstone. If your cornerstone is the God of the Bible, you will orient yourself to that revelation. If you reject that cornerstone, you will orient yourself to some other cornerstone. And it could be any of a number of things. And in Romans chapter 1, Paul speaks to all the other, all, many of the possibilities. Well, last week I said that we're going to look at foundational thoughts to our orientation to this one presupposition. First, what is the nature of God? Second, what is the nature of man? Third, what is truth and how do I know what is true? And then lastly, what is the purpose of man? These are foundational stones that are set in orientation to the cornerstone. There are many more than just these four, but time only permits me to give attention to a few. Uh, maybe some later, at some point, we can have a Sunday school class that would uh, talk about the others, the other foundational stones that are oriented to the chief cornerstone. But these four are the most basic. And these four questions... <coughs> are part and parcel of every worldview. What is the nature of God? To the Christian, He is our chief cornerstone. To the non-believer, He doesn't exist. So I have no obligation to Him. Second, what is the nature of man? To the Christian, because we're oriented to the chief cornerstone, who's the God of the Bible, we are derivative from that person. That God. We are derived from Him. To the unbeliever, 
Since there is no God, man has to become the arbiter of all that is, in some form or another. For he chooses to make a God for himself. Third, what is truth and how do we know what is true? To the Christian, the Scriptures make it plain. In chapter 4 of John's Gospel, Jesus says, Thy word is truth. Speaking of the Word of God. And to the unbeliever, truth is fluid. It's what he believes it is. Not what comes to him by God's revelation. And then lastly, what is the purpose of man? Well, we have the privilege of having a great confession and a, and a larger and shorter catechism. And our first catechism question in the shorter catechism asks that very question, uh, what is the purpose of man? And the answer given there is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And the Scriptures teach us that. But to the unbeliever, what is the purpose of man? To glorify himself and die. So you see, a worldview is very important. It colors everything we think about. Every decision we make. And so it's important that our worldview be conformed to the image of the one who's created us. Well, I want to bring us to four passages that in, in, in Scripture that speak to these four questions. And those four passages, if you're taking notes, are Revelation 22, verses 12 through 13, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 27 through 29, Deuteronomy 29, 29, and 1 Corinthians 13, 11 through 12. And I'm going to read those various passages, but I want you to think about those in light of those four statements that I spoke about earlier, four questions that I posed earlier. As I read these passages, please keep in mind that the nature of God, man, truth, and man's purpose are all spoken of here. Though maybe not as directly as we would like, certainly they're assumed. And remember that I've asserted that these things are inseparable because they are derived and oriented from the chief cornerstone, the presupposition of the God of the Bible. Okay, Revelation chapter 22, verses 12 and 13. And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Does that not speak to the nature of God? His person? Indeed. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 27 through 29. For he has put all things under his feet. But he, when, when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is expected. Now when all things are made subject to him then the Son Himself will also be subject to Him who put all things under Him, that God may be all and in all. This speaks to the nature of man being derivative of God. We don't sit in judgment of God or over God. We are His creatures. 
But what about the, the notion of what is truth? And how do I know what is true? Deuteronomy 29, 29 speaks to this very pointedly. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. God has revealed to man what he needs to know to glorify him and enjoy him forever. But some things are kept secret, therefore God himself. So you see, God is transcendent when it comes to knowledge, but gracious in revealing to us what is necessary for life and godliness. And then in 1 Corinthians 13, the passage that I've chosen for today, you may have thought, now why did he pick 1 Corinthians 13, the chapter on love, to talk about worldview? Well, it was for verses 11 and 12. That's why I chose it. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am known. Now verse 13 or verse 12 there seems to be a little obscure in our, our way of thinking. But let me unpack that, those two verses a little bit. This is talking about maturity. Now this is in the context, the larger context of love, loving our neighbors as ourselves, the great second commandment, loving God first, our neighbors as ourselves. What does that all mean? Well, when I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. Do children think of being neighborly in the sense of loving their brothers and sisters as they ought? Always? Or are they more thoughtful about their own needs? Do they mostly think about their hunger and about, they don't think about sleep, but they need it. Uh, you understand where I'm going with this. As a child, our perspective on things is very self-centered, isn't it? But as we grow older, we understand eh, we're not the only persons on I'm not the only person on earth. Some people grow out of that childishness slower than others. But truly, as we grow older, we become, or at least we should become, conform to the image of Christ, those who believe in Him, and think about others more highly than one's own self. But that's what Jesus did for us. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly. We don't... God's revealed many things to us, but we still don't grasp it as we ought but then we'll come face to face with it. When, when we leave this life and are glorified in the presence of our Savior, what we know in part now, we will know in fullness then. For we will know as we are known by God. He will reveal even more to us in our glorification. Christian maturity comes over time. And this speaks to the purpose of man. What is your purpose in life? Well, the confession tells us to love God and enjoy Him forever. Well, what does that mean? 
to conform yourself to the image of Christ. And what did He do? He gave up His glory to bring your salvation to fruition. He gave everything He had to bring you out of sin and death and set your feet on the solid rock. Well, the four questions that I posed and these scriptures that speak to them are the foundations of our Christian worldview. To summarize, the nature of God is the first and the last, the beginning and end of all things. Man is created of God. Man knows things because God reveals things to man. And lastly, though man does not see these things but dimly in this life, or in part, as the Scriptures say, we shall one day know things as we are known by God, comprehensively and for eternity. God transcends us in that regard. And that's an important understanding in our Christian worldview. God transcends us. He has created and sustains us without our aid. Let me say that again. He has created and sustains us without our aid. He has revealed Himself to us without our participation. He is a self-sustaining being. And unlike God, we are completely dependent beings. God transcends us. But we depend, depend moment by moment on the breath that we take, the food we eat, the water we drink, upon a benevolent, gracious, and merciful Creator God. What causes us to take breaths without a single thought given to that very act? Think about that. Why do you take breaths? You don't think about it. Well, you might. When you go to the doctor, take a deep breath. First thing you do is gasp for air, right? But day by day, moment by moment, do you ever think about the breath that you take? Very seldom. What causes our hearts to beat without our intentions? You ever think about that? It just goes on beating. Do you ever say, heart, turn off? Would it do you any good to say that? Or beat faster? Or slower? Yet the body adjusts to exercise and vigor. And those things happen. But not without your aid, do they? What causes our bodies to consistently process nourishment without any effort on our behalf? Except to put it in the mouth. And maybe chew it up. What, why does that happen continually? And it works all the time. Seemingly. Of course, we understand the, the noetic effects of sin. That sin has deteriorated the body to the point, at some point, it will cease to function as God created it to. But as it functions now, do we cause our nourishment to happen? Other than just putting the food in our mouths? What causes the change in seasons? The tides to rise and fall. Clouds to form and give forth rain. The sun to rise and set. 
Is it not the transcendent God? And does He ask once for your permission to do these things? No. Because He is God. And we are the creatures. The distinction between God's transcendence and man's dependence has been known by by theologians as what is called the patristic balance. The patristic balance. I heard that term when I was in college, and I haven't heard it many times since, but was recently reminded of it. Well, what is the patristic balance? From the earliest days of the Christian faith until approximately the 16th century, the the patristic balance was not only the Christian worldview, but the worldview of Western civilization. It permeated most of life, from architecture and art to one's daily agrarian livelihood. And that patristic balance is the transcendence of God being prominent and man being considered derivative or behind God in all that takes place. For the first 16th century of Christian world and view thought, that balance that God was transcendent and in the foreground, and we are derivative and in the background, was the balance of thought. Man looked upon his circumstance as derivative from God, whatever that circumstance might be. And as I said, it permeated everything in their life, architecture and art. Why were the great cathedrals built throughout the Middle Ages? God's person and worship were central to one's existence then. They were central to your existence. When you entered the cathedral, the vaulted ceilings caused you to immediately look up to the heavens. And in art, the place of the ordinary man was always behind the images of characters of God, those characters that he had revealed in his scriptures, whether it be prophets or or apostles or disciples, or even depictions of Christ himself. Common men were always in the background. God's revealed personages were always in the foreground. God's revelation of himself in the minds of the middle-aged Christians was in the foreground. And men, we were in the background. That's the patristic balance in the early part of Christianity. But during the Renaissance which was followed by what historians called the Enlightenment. Now, of course, the Reformation took place in there as well. And I now want to turn our focus away from the Christian worldview to the pagan worldview. During the Enlightenment, man became prominent and God was placed in the background. Culturally, we are, all, we are so influenced by the so-called Enlightenment We have adopted Enlightenment terminology when describing the age of transcendence or the age, the Middle Ages. We call that time what? The Dark Ages. That's an interesting term. And that could not be anything further than the truth, from the truth. The Middle Ages were not Dark Ages. That was the age of transcendence where God was honored as creator and men as creatures. 
Now I'll speak to this difference a bit later in these in this sermon series. When I talk about, when I compare modern worldviews to, to the Christian worldview. But I speak to this for this is historical example to you to emphasize that worldviews do matter and being conformed to the image of the Son of God is our high calling as Christians and as creatures of the living God. The Bible poses two insightful questions. What is man that you are mindful of him, speaking of God, or the son of man that you should visit him? And these two questions, being so profound, will be in the coming weeks answered. But I want to say this to you with regard to our worldview. It is imperative, imperative that it be conformed to the scriptures. That we look upon God as a transcendent being who is gracious and benevolent, full of mercy and grace, which is poured out among His people. And so today, as I conclude the sermon, I want to leave you with this exhortation. I, I, I mentioned to my wife this morning, I'm going to have a very philosophical sermon. I try not to do this. I really try hard not to do this for, for, for good reason. And the reason is this. When you have a philosophical sermon, you use, tend to use terminology that's not common to men. It's not, um, as the, uh, they would say in the, the Middle Ages, the vulgar language. And that's not to, to speak to vulgarities as we think about them today. The vulgar language was the common man's language. When you speak of philosophical things, often you use terminology that's not well known. The other problem is that you often, uh, when I speak of these things, the concepts may be too difficult for our children to grasp. That's why I tried to use an example today of a building, the cornerstone, the stones laid around it, oriented to that cornerstone. They can understand that. But some of these other terms they may not have understood. So I try not to do these kinds of sermons. Yet, it is important for the church to give thought to what it means to be image bearers of Christ, to be conformed to His image, as we read in Romans chapter 8 today. So I want to leave you with this exhortation. Consider your life, the breaths that you take, the food that you eat, the shelter that you live in, Consider those things. Consider the vocation God has given you. Children, your vocation right now is to learn. That's a great privilege. In the history of mankind, children were put to work at very early ages. And that's what they knew. They knew the work that their fathers and mothers had given them to do. You have a great privilege. You have the privilege not only to do your chores at home, that's important. Don't do it with grumbling and complaining, children. That's good work. That's God-given work. And so are your studies. For those who don't like mathematics, it's important that you understand them. Someday you're going to have to keep a checkbook. You're going to have to understand how many gallons you need for your gas tank. So you need to understand arithmetic. For those of you, boys, for those of you who don't like English or reading, guess what? 
God's revealed himself in a book. Get over it. Learn to love to read. Learn to love the book. For those of you who don't like science, it's all around us. It's God's creation. We need to embrace that. So when you approach children, when you approach your studies, give thought to the transcendent God who has put that before you. And parents who want to teach you that that comes from the hand of God. Consider the immensity of your dependence upon God. The immensity of your dependence. Children, the word immensity means the largeness of it. God gives us things daily that we, we can't account for. And it comes in great bounty and overflowing. Now there are times in our lives where God draws back from those gracious things that He gives us. That we might understand His the dependence upon Him all the more. When God draws back the good gifts, typically, typically, it's only for a time. And at that time, it's a wilderness experience, just like Christ ex- uh, 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 went through 40 days in the wilderness on his own. I I venture to say you can hardly find a character in the scriptures that did not have a wilderness experience in his or her life. Think about all of them. All of them had those experiences. Every last one of them. Should you be any different? God brings those to, to form you into the character he wants you to be. The image of his son. As we think about our complete dependence on a transcendent, unchanging, benevolent, gracious, and merciful God, the one who has revealed himself to us in his scripture, it should draw us to humility, to humbleness, in gratitude to him, thanking him for those benevolences that he's poured out upon us. And in doing that, In doing that, being humble, we become like our Savior, Jesus Christ. Each Sunday, and I can't remember a Sunday that I've failed to do this, as I've been the pastor of this church. I remind us of the humility of Christ at the Lord's table. When I recount that passage from Philippians that Paul gives us about Christ. I'll do it again today. Think about what He's done for us. And then live that out as your Christian worldview in the days to come. That's my exhortation to you today. Let us pray together. Father in Heaven, we give You thanks that not only have You drawn us out of darkness into light, but You've given us the great and perfect example of Your dear Son, our Savior, as a model to follow after in our own worldview. Though our days are different than the days of our Savior, truly all things work together for good to them that love God and are called according to your purposes, the Scriptures reminded us even today. So Father, we pray that you would direct our paths with your word. 
that Your revelation would become more and more precious to us. That we might be conformed to the image of Your Son. And Father, we pray that we would be faithful to that to the nth degree. Be willing to lay down our lives as Christ did for us, for others. And Father, help us to embrace that with glad hearts. Not with fear and trembling of the future, for we have it's been revealed to us what our future is. These great things that we hope for. Eternal life in your presence. So we have every reason to be confident in the calling that you've given to us. That we can perform it to the day of Jesus Christ. Because you keep us in your hands. Father, help us to embrace that and to, to know it deep in our bones. Deep in our persons and our thoughts and our minds and our hearts. And to rejoice because of these great works you've done on our behalf. Father, we pray for the testimony of Trinity. We thank you for the provisions you've made for us in our congregation. And Father, we would be so bold as to ask that you would add to our numbers. Bring to us men and women who need deliverance from sin and death. That they might hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and embrace it. And we pray too, Lord, that they would yearn to become image bearers of your Son, Jesus, as we yearn to do that as well. Father, we pray for those in authority over us, and we ask that you would give us men who would guide and direct us in righteousness, both in the church and in the civil realm. We pray, Father, for uh, those who govern us, that they would bow their knee to your Son, Jesus Christ, that they would... Do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly before Him. But should they refuse, we pray that you, in your sovereign goodness to your people, you would remove them and replace them with those who bow their knee to your Son, Jesus. Father, we pray for the church of Jesus Christ around the world. We hear so many accounts of persecution that's coming against your people. Father, we know that you are long-suffering, that you're slow to anger and abounding in mercy, but Psalm 103 teaches us that you will not withhold your wrath forever. So, Father, we pray that those who persecute your church would repent, that your Spirit would come into their lives and cause them to feel the guilt of their sin and to turn from it by turning to your Son, Jesus Christ. But again, Father, if they should refuse to do that, we pray that you would rise up as the champion of your people and put down those who persecute your people. Father, we commit all these things to your kind and gracious, benevolent hands. We thank you for the work you're doing in our lives. And we pray that we would be but leaven in a lump where we see the whole world turning to your Son, Jesus. And in this season, Lord, we remember that great promise from the prophet Isaiah that of the increase of his government and in his peace, there would be no end. And your zeal will perform it. And now let us join our voices together in the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples, praying together, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. 
Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.